This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, December 21st. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, a decades-long effort to conserve the Dolores. Mountain Village passes 2023 budget. Holidays at the Telluride Post Office. And a mountain weather forecast. The Dolores River starts high in the San Juan southwest of Telluride, passes through Dolores, Colorado, where it fills the reservoir at McPhee Dam, and from then on trickles north through hundreds of miles of desert, meeting the San Miguel and feeding eventually into the Colorado. Those who have boated it say it's a river like no other. You start and you below um, below the dam at Radfield Bridge, and you kind of you head into the Ponderosa Gorge, which is this you know big canyon walls and these amazing majestic um, Ponderosa pines and start to see more and more of the kind of red rock coming out and you know you transition down into less trees and more red rock canyon wall and down into the wilderness study area and at different places it opens up more and I I mean it just it's kind of this ever-changing landscape but sort of the majesty of it really never diminishes. That's Amber Clark, the director of Dolores River Boating Advocates or DRBA, which promotes stewardship and recreation along the river. Bob Gleason of Telluride sits on the Boating Advocates Board and speaks of the serenity of boating the Dolores. If you get down beyond the sections that are typically run right there, you're there completely on your own. Uh, When you're going slick rock to bedrock, you've got all these huge meanders in the rivers with these gigantic cliffs and uh, the, the horseshoe bend that you get inside that section right in there are just, you know, so unique and, and so untouched in those areas in there. And, uh, you know, you could do that for four or five days and never see another person. Here's Clark again. It's a, it's just a really special place. And I don't know, it's one of those things that if you've, if you've been down there, you kind of, you kind of know and understand that feeling, but it's definitely a landscape and a place that really kind of grabs you and doesn't let go. The DRBA is one of dozens of stakeholders who have been working to protect the Dolores as a National Conservation Area, or an NCA. Based on those efforts, legislation to form an NCA is currently being considered by Congress. Some rivers are protected by Congress under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, but protection as an NCA is less controversial, especially amongst agricultural interests. Al Heaton, a cattle rancher in Dolores involved in the conservation effort, explains his view. And Wild and Scenic comes with some, uh, what would you say, with some rules and regulations, some laws uh, that are pretty dramatic and would affect a lot of things, private properties and various things down the river. Uh, uh, Of course, grazing could continue in a Wild and Scenic setting, but it could also be further restricted. Uh, So I felt like there had to be a better way. For conservation groups, giving up the Wild and Scenic designation to pursue an NCA was a compromise, but it came with lasting protections, says Clark. You know, it is a compromise where Wild and Scenic suitability will no longer be looked at. But um, one of the really important things that the legislation does do is maintain, you know, no new impoundments on, on the river, so no new dams. Jeff Wyden is a longtime conservation advocate based in Durango with the Wilderness Society. He explains how the ban on new dams on the Dolores goes even farther. One of the significant things, there is language that says if there's something proposed even outside the area, the NCA, that would, the, the wording is unreasonably diminish 
the values within the area that it wouldn't be allowed. So in other words, if someone wanted to build a big dam upstream of the NCA and it would just dry up all the water in the NCA or, you know, in other ways harm the natural values, um, they wouldn't be able to do it. The NCA would also prevent new mining operations and road building in the area. But to understand the significance of preventing new dams, you need to understand how they change rivers. In 1985, a dam was completed on the Dolores, forming the McPhee Reservoir, which irrigates area agriculture. Heaton remembers a time before the dam. Dam controls the river now. Uh, you know, it didn't like it used to be. I can remember the river before the dam was in and completed, and uh, how it, uh, how the heavy runoff in the spring and various things. But that's all more controlled now. Hattie Johnson, with the Recreation and Conservation Group American Whitewater, says water in the Dolores is now determined almost entirely by releases from McPhee. The river is, is more or less, you know, a few other tributaries coming in, but more or less uh, completely regulated regulated by McPhee Dam. And, and the presence of water really depends on um, releases from that dam. And that only happens when basically the reservoir behind the dam is, is pretty much going to overflow. Given the drought conditions in the West, boaters as well as native fish and plant species have seen less and less water in the river over the years, says Johnson. Actually, in the past two summers, we have seen gauging stations on the Dolores hit zero CFS, so totally dry, no, no water in the river. We haven't had flows released from the dam for, for boating since 2019. And with our extreme drought conditions that we are seeing right now, to get the conditions to boat the Dolores, um, it's, it's feeling further out of reach, I would say. The protections would do little to release more water from the reservoir. Between drought, historic agricultural water rights, and the dozens of interests involved, coming to an agreement on how to conserve the Dolores was often contentious. Here's Wyden. It's incredibly complex trying to crack this nut, trying to figure out, like, how can we protect the river and not hurt agriculture and do things on a voluntary basis. And the legislation that we came up with is about as close as you can get, in my opinion. But it took a decade and a half to get there. Tomorrow on our newscast, we'll continue our coverage of the Dolores River with a story on what that process looked like and what the future of the bill in Congress could be. Earlier this month, Mountain Village Town Council passed its budget for 2023. KOTO News spoke with Mountain Village Town Manager Paul Weiser and Finance Director Lisbeth Lemley about some of the highlights. Both relatively new staff at Mountain Village, the conversation starts with how the budget process went. This is really the first full year that I've uh, been involved with the budget process, and it's always a great experience um, for anyone who's involved in local government because it really does encapsulate all the priorities of any organization. But one of the great pleasures within this uh, experience has been the opportunity to work with Elizabeth Lemley, who is our new finance director. She's also been with us for just about a year now. She comes to us from Ware Park. And I think that if you listen to any of our recent town council meetings, you would hear town council just have rave reviews for 
the process that she's run and how smoothly our budget uh, has been this year. And so on a lot of levels, including the budget, we are so grateful to have Elizabeth on our team. Can you give that big picture overview? What are some of the big elements in the budget for 2023? In looking at this budget, it's obvious that the town council's biggest priority is addressing the affordable housing crisis in the community and dedicating those resources to do so. The town as a whole has um, appropriated for $37 million of capital investments in next year with $27 million, um, just over 73% of that, going to projects related to the affordable housing in the community. So I think that's one thing that council really wants to get out there and has been very vocal about. I think that one of my priorities when I became town manager and then became a priority of council uh, was to implement a capital improvement plan, which we previously did not have. And I could not be more pleased with uh, the effort and um, enthusiasm that Elizabeth put into putting that plan together. So I'll let her chat a little bit about what's actually within uh, that specific plan. When we look out um, those five years, I think the biggest pieces you're going to see is a continuation of what we just discussed, which is appropriating funds to solving the affordable housing crisis. Um, But the other piece that I think is something we share with the town of Telluride, where we see quite a bit of funding needed over the next um, several years, is the sewer, um, the wastewater treatment plant upgrades. So that's another big piece that we're planning for in the future. Um, as well as just keeping the gondola up and running and maintaining it in good fashion. One of the items I wanted to discuss is actually what's not in the budget. Um, We had had initial discussions about installing a new air conditioning system within the Telluride Conference Center, which the Town of Mountain Village owns and TSG operates. And an air conditioner for that facility is about a half million dollars. And, you know, honestly, within the scope of our budget. It's not the largest line item, but I think it's noteworthy that we ultimately did not include that in our budget because uh, rather than invest in that new air conditioning system, town council has decided decided to take a um, step back and reevaluate how the conference center can be optimized and better utilized. And so as we go through that process, we anticipate that there will be some reconstruction that's associated with the conference center. And we want to make sure that uh, we're not throwing money away on an air conditioning system when in a very short amount of time we anticipate a renovation for the conference center. When people think about the budget, they're obviously going to think about how it will impact their bank account. Um, Are there any fees that will go up or down for residents next year? One of the things that we've been doing um, over the past past few years to build fund balance to address some of the uh, needs of our water and um, sewer fund is we have increased our base rates annually to help us build that fund balance. So that is something that our uh, citizens have seen year after year, but we've been careful to point out that this is so that we are um, able to fund these very necessary improvements. As far as for um, the affordable housing development, um, we do plan to issue debt and have applied for many grants to fund the VCA expansion. Um, and we project that the rents received off of these units will be sufficient to pay the debt and maintain the property. So that is not something that we think um, our constituents will see. With respect to all the housing that we have going on and the $37 million price tag that we mentioned, 
that's not coming directly out of the town's coffers in terms of cash going over to developers or bankers. Um, we are anticipating issuing debt and having to pay, obviously, principal and interest payments on that debt while we carry it. But we fully anticipate that that debt will either be repaid in full by the sale of certain products that we're developing or will be supported over time by the revenue generated from rental units. So what we're really going for is that this is a um, <clears throat> essentially a zero-sum cost to the town and its taxpayers over time. Paul, Elizabeth, thanks for taking a few minutes to chat with me and congratulations on passing the budget. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. We appreciate your time. The front of the Telluride post office is buzzing, but ordered. A line of people waits to mail letters and packages, waiting to pick up their parcels in time for the holidays. Uh, 3589. But behind the scenes, the back of the post office is a maze of organized chaos. The last two years, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we had over 55,000 packages. And we're on track to be really close to that this year. I'm the postmaster, tell you right, Roger Delaney. It's a Monday morning in the middle of the holiday season. According to Delaney, the post office gets around 1,500 pieces of mail per day. We organize the chaos the best we can, but there is so much mail, and, and I have a hard time recruiting people. We're running two, two people short, uh, so we're, everyone is making up for those two people. So it's, it's organized chaos. The mail arrives at 8 in the morning. We'll start at the beginning. The beginning is our rear dock. So the mail arrives here on the truck. Uh, the clerk meets the mail, brings it in to the staging area. Oh, we're going to get run over. The parcels come in huge metal containers. At the same time, letters and magazines arrive in a cage and are taken to a staff member to sort and deliver to P.O. boxes. It's a continuous process because at some time today, uh, DHO will drop off uh, probably another 150 parcels. FedEx will drop off, could be anywhere between 100 and 700 parcels. And UPS will drop off uh, probably another 700 parcels throughout the day. So it's a continue, it continues throughout the day. Several employees pull a steady stream of parcels out of the containers, scanning them in, sorting them to either go to a P.O. box or head out for a delivery to Lawson, Aldosaro, and Mountain Village. On one side of the room are rows and rows of shelves with packages. That's where they sit when they're too big for a box. Individuals get a yellow slip in their P.O. box, letting them know they have a package waiting. It's broken down by the last two digits. Not only do we have the normal two digits sort, we also have an F shelf for the taller stuff, B, C, B, and A shelf, by B, by A. So the yellow slips are the code where to find stuff. We also, during Christmas, we'll, we'll do a G shelf and an H shelf. Delaney says that's why the post office is so insistent on having those yellow slips. So we know where to look. Because right now there's probably, if you counted all these that are sitting on shelves, there's, there's thousands of packages back here. And there's 18 different sections it can be in. So, 
So it's important that they, when they come in, uh, hopefully we can get to a point this week where I have a clerk just at the, the Dutch store doing just yellow slips because we want everyone to get their Christmas. Delaney's been working at the post office in Telluride for about four years, but he's been with the Postal Service for decades. A lot of people like me that are veterans uh, end up at the post office. Uh, a lot of the structure is the same as military. Uh, there are a lot of veterans that are employed by the USPS. It's the largest uh, individual employer of veterans. That's probably what drew me here. Uh, wasn't necessarily for the money. <laughs> but it was decent. Uh, but I think it was just a, a natural continuation for me. But it's the people, his team, that Delaney says keeps him in the job. He likes engaging with the community, the kids who come in. Especially now with the white beard. They're not taking a chance because I might be Santa Claus. If they come in with a yellow slip, I'll bring them back and they'll help me find their packages. Uh, and there's a, there's a few in town, they'll come in and say, hey, can I come get my package? Sure, let's go back. You know, they're not going to come back on their own. I'll go back with them. And sometimes their parents want to come back too, and I, we'll, we'll go for a tour. And then people go, oh, it's a miracle I got my package. Because <laughs> it kind of, yeah, it kind of looked like it might be. In post offices across the country and in Telluride, the real-life elves of the U.S. Postal Service are working as fast as they can to bring the holiday season to everyone. You may just need to be a little patient. A mysterious and oftentimes deadly disease has been popping up in Colorado horse populations. Although investigations into the cause are ongoing, the FDA believes the illness is coming from contaminated alfalfa cubes distributed by Mansanola Feeds in Mansanola, Colorado. The FDA is warning horse owners not to feed top of the Rockies alfalfa cubes and to dispose of them in a secure container. So far, at least 98 horses across the state have come down with symptoms of neurologic disease, including muscle tremors, inability to eat or swallow, and collapse. At least 45 horses have died or been put down due to their condition. The only common food source amongst all cases is Mansonola's Top of the Rockies alfalfa. In disposing of the feed, the FDA recommends extreme care be taken, including wearing face masks, gloves, and sanitizing containers with bleach for a list of specific manufacture dates for the recalled alfalfa and for disposal instructions visit the outbreaks in advisory section of the FDA's veterinary website that's fda.gov/animal-veterinary Have you been making New Year's resolutions? Well, the town of Telluride is finalizing its goals, and not just for 2023, but for, give or take, the next decade. Throughout 2022, the town has been working on its community vision and action plan. Town Council plans to approve the final version in early 2023. The values and goals outlined in the plan will shape the town planning in the years to come. The final period of public review and comment is now open through January 5th. To share any input, visit engagetelluride.org and visit the 2022 Community Vision and Action Plan project page.
Get your snowshoes or skins ready. The Telluride Foundation's third Skidula is coming to town. The winter equivalent of the Rundula, this Skidula is an uphill race starting from the base of the gondola in Telluride and finishing at the top of the ridge by San Sofia Station. Racers gain nearly 2,000 feet in elevation any way they can on snow, either by snowshoe or skis and skins. The race is a fundraiser for the Telluride Mountain Club's Peter Inglis Avalanche Education Fund, which aims to create opportunities for avalanche education and backcountry awareness. The Skidula will take place on March 14th, starting at 5.30 p.m. Any and everyone is encouraged to participate. Registration is now open and available at runreg.com slash Early bird prices are available until January 15th. The Colorado River could be facing another dry year ahead. From KUNC, Luke Runyon has more. The Colorado Basin River Forecast Center says the river's headwaters could be due for a drier-than-normal year ahead. Even though snowpack is at relatively normal levels across Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah, that could change, says the center's hydrologist, Cody Mosier. We're happy to see uh, some of the recent snow, but it's, I think, still way too early to to get too excited. Mosier says a third year of La Nina makes a dry winter more likely. The amount of water the river delivers into Lake Powell, one of its main reservoirs, is currently projected to be below average this spring due to dry soils across the basin. The river is in a 23-year-long mega drought that has drained its largest reservoirs to historic lows. I'm Luke Runyon. Almost every winter, since the late 90s, the Tennessee School for the Blind has brought a group of students to Snowmass to learn how to ski with Challenge Aspen. And this year, the program expanded, inviting four additional students from the Governor Moorhead School in North Carolina. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander has more on the high school students who fell in love with the sport and the alumnus who made it all possible. The first time I've been this far west, first time on a plane. Being from Nashville, I'd never seen this much snow before. I mean, I was always like a daredevil, but this really kind of tested me skiing. Joseph Gray was a student at the Tennessee School for the Blind in 2004 when he first traveled to Snowmass to learn how to ski. He remembers how quickly he fell in love with the sport, thanks in part to his Challenge Aspen instructor. I mean, the guy, he probably talked to me for about 45 minutes before we went out on on the snow just to get to know me and once we got out there with the way he was instructing me, I was on Sam's Knob my second day. The Sam's Knob chairlift takes skiers to the top of one of the peaks on the Snowmass ski area where they can ski on intermediate and expert terrain. That's a big feat for someone's second day on the slopes. And after skiing in Snowmass, Gray went on to compete in the Paralympics in track and field. I remember the night before, I literally just dreamed about skiing. Field. I'd always tap back into this. Like just this place, the memories, because, you know, being visually impaired, you hear more people tell you what you can't do than what you can do. And then thinking about how I did something that a lot of my sighted peers haven't even done, you know, it was just a huge boost in confidence. Gray became a teacher for the Tennessee School for the Blind, where he coached other visually impaired students. Now he's in North Carolina at the Governor Moorhead School, where he helped raise the funds for four students to join the annual trip to Snowmass. He is such a networker. I mean, he, I think he could probably talk you out of your skis right now. 
That's Deb Sullivan, the Rec Program Director at Challenge Aspen. She says that various levels of visual impairment can be a benefit when learning how to ski. Blind folks or people that have various levels of visual impairment might actually have an advantage is that they're always very conscious about what's under their feet. You know, whether it's gravel or concrete or grass or sand, you know, and so now it's snow and it slides. Students with visual impairments are paired with an instructor or a buddy when learning how to ski. Students can hold on to the instructor's arms and shoulders, or they can both hold on to a pole while moving down the hill. And once they've progressed to a certain level, those buddies can ski behind or beside the adaptive skier, describing the terrain and telling them when to turn and when to stop. A number of students said they were scared to get on the hill for the first time, but most of them quickly learned to love it. I started off really terrified yesterday and partway throughout this morning, but other than that, I'm absolutely in love with it. Honestly, you have to keep your balance while bending your knee so that you don't fall or slide backwards. But over in your eye, it feels good to ski for the first time. What do you love most about skiing? Everything, really. Just sliding, falling. It's really just like a water slide, but with just a lot of snow. Sullivan said one student in particular had shown a lot of growth during this trip. Sonia has been really quiet, and she's really timid, and she's super careful about every step she takes with her cane and steps getting into the van and out of the van. Sonia Nima is a senior at the Tennessee School for the Blind. Sullivan said she was curious how Nima would react on the slopes. I was really scared. Like I was I'm still scared today, but it's but when I started it 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 was awesome. On her second day of skiing, Nima was doing well and taking laps on the magic carpet, a small conveyor belt that brings students up a small slope at the Elk Camp Meadows. Erin Loftus works for Challenge Aspen and says the carpet can be one of the toughest challenges for new skiers. I think that like even when we're with able-bodied people or just volunteers, the magic carpet is always the hardest part of the day. You know, getting on and moving on an incline, especially when you don't have your full visual field. Nima added that the carpet was difficult, but it didn't keep her from enjoying the sport. Like, the skiing is the best part <laughs> of the whole trip. And, like, I'm so glad that I got to do this new adventure, you know, without my parents, because I've done many other adventures before, like parasailing, roller coaster, but I've never done this much of a winter sport before, so I'm, like, really excited. And she feels there's practical lessons from this experience that she can take home with her. We have a big hill in our backyard when it snows to use the techniques to go up and down the hill. Um, I've also learned that I really enjoy skiing better than the sledding, which I've done before because I feel like in skiing you can have more control over your body versus sledding. Nima added that when she gets scared, she has a bit of a mantra. I tell myself that I have survived before, and I will survive, and the worst that will happen is I might fall, but that will be okay. Gray says when his students stepped into their ski boots and got comfortable on the snow, he was more proud in that moment than in any of his Paralympic accomplishments. I'm visually impaired, so I know what those, you know, those steps are that they're taking. And like I said, to, to share this experience with them is just, to me, it's monumental. It's, this, to me, this is better than any gold medal, world ranking, anything that I've ever had before. This, this tops all of that. Hallie Zander, Aspen Public Radio News. 
The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 30% chance of snow showers tonight, with a low around 10 degrees. Snow is likely to continue Thursday morning, before cloudy skies clear for a sunny and windy afternoon. The high should be around 20 degrees. Thursday night should be mostly cloudy with a low around 10 degrees. For Friday, there's a 50% chance of snow showers and a forecast high near 35. Friday night should be cloudy with a low around 20. This has been the news for Wednesday, December 21st. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hello, Kodo listeners. Do you have a child between the ages of zero and eight? If so, please join Bright Futures and Wilkinson Public Library for a free parent support group. This group is being extended by popular demand and upcoming dates are Tuesday, December 6th, December 20th, January 17th, and January 31st. Please join us on these days at the library from 1130 to 1230. Kids are welcome and snacks will be provided. See you there. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.